you know, we, we think that the same way that you go out and shop for a database or shop for an auto ML solution, you know, people are going to be shopping for unstructured solutions. Uh, and that's started to happen. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Welcome back to the Leaders of B2B podcast. I'm Noah Tetzner, and today I'm joined by the CTO of Indico Data, a software company that transforms unstructured data into actionable insights. With the AI and ML-powered Indico unstructured data platform, enterprises of all sizes can automate, analyze, and apply unstructured data, documents, emails, images, videos, and more, to a wide range of enterprise workflows. This enables them to gain rich insight and maximize the value of their existing software investment. Slater Viktorov, welcome to Leaders of B2B. Thanks so much for having me, Noah. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, my friend. There's so much I want to dive into today, and I kind of teed up a nice intro for Indico, but in case I missed anything, and it's always best coming from you know the leader's mouth, I'd love to hear what is it you do at Indico Data? Who is this software for? And how can it help our leaders tuning in today? Totally. So, you know, I think thankfully, uh, and this hasn't always been the case, but the marketing on the site is actually pretty good, you know, and I I take no responsibility for that. Uh, but Jeff, uh, our, our new CMO who we hired, you know, he really did a good job. So that that is a good baseline. But to give sort of a sense, you know, behind the scenes, you know, for, for another B2B leader, really what that translates to on the back end, right, is that we are dealing with a lot of pretty sophisticated technology. We were very early into the market with transfer learning uh, based on deep learning, specifically in the language space. So we shipped uh, our first production model uh, in RNN uh, in 2015, and people could actually make their own sort of large-scale language model, uh, you know, transfer learning-based applications, which was you know really rare. You know, we were kind of years ahead of I think the the next company to do that. What then is also really interesting, though, is that we realized that just building out that technology really was not enough. So there's an Indico V1 and an Indico V2. Indico V1 is really, really technology focused. The notion that APIs are, you know, where the solution ends and that people will be able to uh, create value out of that. Uh, Indico V2 was us realizing I guess it's a little bit harder than that. And really, you know, combining that with an enterprise application layer that helps people interact with this technology in a really productive way. So automation, obviously a huge application for us. You think about intelligent automation and intelligent document processing, bread and butter for us. For sure, for sure. No, well, take us back to the moment when this company got started. You know, share some insight on that journey. Yeah, so the... The starting is very, very interesting. I like to say I kind of fell into it ass backwards, right? And, that, and that's that's completely, <laughs> you know, I'd love to tell you that I sat here and I pontificated about, or, you know, sat in my, my dorm room and pontificated about what the perfect AI company on the planet would look like. And, you know, I've been playing 3D chess ever since. But that's absolutely not the case. 
And it really just came from a love of AI. Uh, that, I would say, really was the nexus. Uh, in 2012, I said to one of my professors, the war is over and deep learning lost. Uh, now, obviously, I'm eating crow in a very serious way now, but that that kind of surety and the way that I now characterize that moment, you know, it's the most wrong that I've ever been. And that in so many ways was actually the genesis of Indico. You know, to, to kind of, you know, skip a couple steps ahead, I started doing competitions with a friend of mine. And, you know, after, uh, you know, a couple of steps ended up in me getting just absolutely beat by these deep learning techniques again and again and again. I realized I was wrong. I realized it was time to switch horses. And that really was the genesis of Indico was this notion that we were convinced the technology we saw how much this could do for unstructured data. So talking language and image, that that kind of data that was just incredibly difficult to get at before. Uh, but we also realized, because you know, this is this is you know eight, nine, eight, nine years ago now, that there was a huge gulf in between this academic kind of research application that showed there was something really promising here and what it would actually take to facilitate wide adoption of this in the enterprise. Indico fundamentally is meant to solve that problem. Uh, now, there's a lot of steps. Obviously, that's a really, really big journey. And I, I, even now, you know, eight years later, I feel like we've we, we've taken the first steps, but only just. For sure. So you started the company essentially out of your college dorm room. Is that correct? That's exactly correct. Yep. Uh, in the west, the second floor, West Hall of East Hall at Olin College, uh, we actually have a picture with an arrow pointing at the specific dorm room, part of Indico onboarding. Oh, that is so cool. So, so there you are, a college student, you know, absolutely infatuated with AI. You know, there's the passion, there's the expertise, you know, would you say you're like a natural entrepreneur? You have kind of that, that business inclination, or is that something that you incurred along your journey? Uh, you know, it's, it's a good question. And I maybe have been trying to answer this question for myself for many years. And maybe I don't have a very satisfying answer for you, but I can, I can maybe at least talk the, about the left hand and the right hand. So on the, on the one side, uh, when I was in middle school, and I didn't actually realize this until many years later, I did create sort of my first business with uh, a friend who actually has gone on. He's a very successful uh, VC of some sort now. Uh, and we were selling dum-dums. I basically realized that, you know, these big bags of 100 dum-dums cost something like $3. To a kid in middle school, a bag of 100 dum-dums is worth way more than $3 or, you know, whatever it was. You know, we started this business of really just reselling the dum-dums then to the classmates. You know, I was buying them candy from CVS, basically. It didn't last for very long, but it was kind of, it was pretty fun. Now, fast forward though, when I showed up at college, I absolutely would not have considered myself to be an entrepreneur in any way, shape or form. I believe that entrepreneurship was a euphemism for unemployment. I didn't really believe that there was any real path for entrepreneurship there. Olin, my school, did a really good job in convincing me otherwise. And over the course of three years, the way that I've come to view it is that I believe that I'm an engineer at heart, uh, and that entrepreneurship is simply the truest form of engineering. And what I mean by that is an engineer, in my estimation, is someone whose uh, skill is really the art and science of going from an idea to reality. 
Usually, we think of that as, you know, maybe blueprints to prototype, you know, maybe a little bit on either side. But I think that entrepreneurship really takes that to uh, the next level and asks this very holistic question, not just how can I build this product? How can I solve this problem in a way that is self-sustaining? At least that's, uh, you know, how, how I like to approach it. I think maybe everyone's got their own flavor, but that's how I think of it. Hmm. No, for sure. I definitely love that. You know, you were a great practitioner of of the work you do. And I want to get into that a little bit more. So if you could just sort of break it down and set the stage for listeners who are new to the field that Indico operates in, you know, talking about unstructured data, you know, documents, emails, images, videos, etc. Your platform allows enterprises to automate and analyze that data. Um, what does that look like sort of at a high level? It's a, it's a very, very good question. The way that I like to think about it, and I think the analogy is, is very helpful, because, you know, all, all enterprise products, we've got, you know, six different modules, and there, there's a lot of pieces to it. But our, our mental model is, rather than maybe a traditional AI system that folks might be familiar with, where, say, we ship you a static model that is, you know, the invoice processor, and you, like, just pass an invoice in and you get results out, you know, certainly you can make those with our product, but that's not what we're selling. What we're selling, think of it much more like a bionic arm for the knowledge worker. So the idea is that rather than us saying we are, you know, say the invoice experts in, in the galaxy, we say, no, you are the invoice experts, but we are the AI, AI experts. So we are delivering a platform to you that says, just put this in the hands of the people who are processing invoices today. Um, even before actually any of the AI turns on, just because of the better user experience and because of the product, you're going to get sort of a 50% acceleration right off the bat. And then we've got a series of very unique kind of AI technologies that will allow us to learn with very, very small amounts of data what you're trying to do and sort of how the AI can assist, you know, start doing pieces of this automatically, right, and start accelerating kind of this overall process of getting the relevant structured information out of your unstructured data as quickly as possible. Hmm. So when you guys partner with an enterprise, what are some of the key problems that they are experiencing before they collaborate with you? Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting is that it's it's a space uh, very much that looks like a fat tail. So, you know, contracts, invoices, you know, purchase orders, bond offerings, public government filings, right, IRS documents. These are all, you know, really, really good examples. You know, the way that I like to think about it is... Where we create information that is really made for human-to-human -human communication, right? You know, earnings calls are another great example, right? You know, all, all these things where you've got long-form text documents and people have to look at them and extract some information from them. Uh, we're adding transparency into those processes. So it's really a question of, the volume you have going through one of those, right? So we process, for instance, something like 95% of all the leases in, in the United States, right? And that, that's a really good example of the kind of stuff that we do. And, you know, I, I couldn't tell you at this exact moment, you know, what is the portion that is, you know, what we handle, you know, it changes kind of a little bit every day, but, you know, it really is a question of volume. I see. Oh, that's fascinating. So, so really unstructured data in the like, you know, broadest sense that that term would permit. Yeah, it's a tool for helping an organization to make unstructured data, you know, a competency. It's very much a learn to fish kind of product. I see. I see. And you work with enterprises of all sizes. Are there enterprises in particular industries that you might try to target that would be most, you know, advantageous 
Yeah. Um, so the way that we generally like to think about it is that, you know, the and this is generally the problem with AI, right, is the technology is very horizontal, right? You know, AI is not going to tell you this is the place to go, this is the place to not. So it's actually a lot more driven by the dynamics of the particular verticals. My, my view is that regardless of the technology, when it comes to crafting your go-to-market motion, you do have to do that in a vertical-specific way. Because if you don't know how to talk to a very specific user, uh, it's just so hard to resonate. And so we do have a pretty highly verticalized go-to-market motion. Uh, banking, financial services, uh, insurance, and commercial real estate are some of our really big markets. There, there are others as well. You know, We've got a pretty good collection of, of customers. But uh, it's that and you know the Fortune 500 kind of uh, Generically, one thing to think about is that once an organization gets to a certain size, an arm of that organization has to take on financial responsibilities that make it look like a big financial institution. Right? I think Walmart is the biggest insurer in the United States, for instance. So when these enterprises you know, have all this unstructured data and through Indico, they're able to automate it and analyze it and apply it, what would then they hope, like what's a practical example of what they might do with that data once it's assembled? Yeah, well, a uh, huge amount. So th there's a few ways to think about how they're doing this, right? The on, on the automation side, these are going to be your really critical standard business processes like loan acceptance, you know, paying out invoices. You know, these are usually ending up in some ERP system downstream or like a Salesforce, you know, some some enterprise system of record. So that is that's the one side, right? Uh, and that's really on the automation side. You know, if you consider automate, analyze, and apply is three different areas we focus. That's really what's happening on the automation side. Um, on the analysis side, it's a little bit different, right? On the analysis side, you actually might be looking out over really broad sort of static data set. You might be getting the value right out of Indico itself, or sometimes uh, what this might be just to use. Well, you know, to use leases as an example, I might want to extract all this structured information from a massive, massive lake of unstructured data. And then I might actually be turning that into a data product that I'm selling to customers downstream. Right. So we might be, say, going through a thousand different reports on uh, shingle prices. Right. Someone is then going to use the structured data we're putting we're, we're pulling off of those unstructured reports to create the definitive you know, industry report on shingle prices. Right. Uh, and then and then they're going to sell that as a product. So that's another one. That's a good example of uh, analysis. And, you know, there's there's a lot of examples. But, you know, in the interest of time, we'll keep on trucking to apply. And I think apply is where things get, I don't know, they're all very interesting, but I think apply is super, super interesting. And this is where people are actually kind of reimagining traditional applications to take full advantage of unstructured. Um, search is the, the most obvious example, right? You know, people use this to facilitate, you know, very modern neural search engines where you're, you're kind of defining your queries in natural language and finding the exact point in the document and it's kind of also aware of you know all the versions of the document build kind of really really cool sophisticated functionality there uh, or you know another example might be in a court settlement there might be 10 different documents and you have to extract you know 20 or 30 fields from each of them you have to check that they all align and actually having an application that you can do that in incredibly difficult generally but you know with with these kind of tools it actually becomes really practical and, and straightforward that's fascinating. No, that's fascinating, Slater. So, you know, what are some examples of what could happen if 
a company or an enterprise didn't have a way to automate, analyze, and apply their unstructured data? Yeah, so when you look at what's happening today is is really what it is. They're very manual, expensive, and bespoke processes. And there's variations, I think. Some, some companies have done a better job of making these consistent. But the most common thing for us when we talk to a customer, honestly, is, you know, let's just say uh, loan approvals, right? So they may have been following the exact same process for loan approvals for 40 or 50 years. Uh, it may, in fact, be the case that the same people have been handling their loan approvals for 40 or 50 years. We show up and almost always the first thing that we have to tell them is they're doing it differently. Right. Jill and Joe and, and Sue, right. Nama, you know, they're all processing these loans a little bit differently. Uh, right. And, you know, maybe in the aggregate, it, it doesn't end up so significant. But, you know, we we have had presentations with customers where they send us, you know, this this full set. And we're like, OK, you know, we, we ran all of these applications through your 12 point checklist and 7 percent of these don't pass. You know, by your estimation, they're fraudulent. And then you hear the room go silent. And you're realizing that they only sent you ones that they approved. And, and this is, I think, what a lot of people are not realizing is that not only are there these tremendous latencies in the, in, in the process, it's also important to remember the people processing these documents are not, I mean, this, this is tough work, right? It's pretty non-trivial. If you're reading a contract, this is often, you know, a lawyer that's making hundreds of dollars an hour that's doing this work, right? And, you know, frankly, if you have any human being do the same thing in a repetitive way, staring at text 300 times, they're going to mis make a mistake. I, I don't care how good they are. And, and so that's a, that's a good sense of a lot of the benefits people are getting, right? So it's this reduced cycle time. It, it's even actually this, this coalescing of expertise. Rather than having a lot of individuals with one understanding, one really big benefit that organizations see is that they're really codifying their expertise in a transparent way that will outlive them at the organization. Um, and in some cases, we're actually letting people retire. People that say, hey, if I left today, no one would know how to do this, but they can actually kind of teach the machine and code that in sort of enough examples that they then feel comfortable that this is handled going forward. When, when you first started the company, was there, you know, when, when you would, you know, get on sales calls or engage with potential customers, was there some resistance, you know, about that? Or because, you know, on one hand, Indico provides, you know, accuracy and automation, which is brilliant. But at the same time, you know, you, you may or may not allow certain people reti to retire, which could be a, a positively or negatively received thing. So one of the things that's very different in the way that we approach, because the people who are teaching these are the people doing the work day to day, right? So it's it's almost never the case, actually, that we're going in and being like, oh, you know, you can cut your headcount by X, right? That's actually almost never what people want us to do, it turns out. What we have found, even though, I mean, it's a really, you know, obvious, obvious question to ask, right? What we found, actually, is that these people are... A generally not actually doing the work you think they are doing. You know, if you ask them to check 12 things off, off of a checklist, but you only give them time to check off three, then they're only going to check off three, maybe even two, 
right? So it's, you know, they actually get to do work that they couldn't have done effectively before. And, you know, even worse, oftentimes this is work that the organization doesn't think very much about, and it just sort of surfaces as this organizational drag. You know, this is this is 50% of the work of your lawyers that is getting eaten up, when in reality, what this might turn into is, wow, now your lawyers are doing everything twice as fast, and you've removed these organizational bottlenecks. So it's accurate to say that Indico takes, the, in a way, the, the work of a series of different roles and is able to employ that through your automation. Yeah, it really becomes really this this collaboration space, right? So, you know, the, the automation COE and the data scientists, right, and the subject matter experts that are processing the documents, they're all Indico, in Indico, right? They're all in the platform sort of working together, importantly, coming to this notion of what does success look like? How do we want this thing to work in a very, you know, collaborative kind of holistic way? Which, which by the way, I think one of the problems is that people often don't recognize that. And when you try to automate a process that isn't consistent, the automation fails, the AI doesn't work, and everyone is sort of stuck pointing fingers at each other, right? So that's one of the really big reasons that we approach it this way is when you give them this kind of collaborative space and they can create truth together, you know, we have something like a 97% success rate in getting to success in production. And industry-wide, that rate is like 11%. No kidding. Wow. Well, that is fascinating, and I've loved learning all about Indico data. It's it's a fascinating business later, but I'm curious. You know, you started this company out of your college dorm room. You were fascinated in AI, but how did you recognize that there was a need for this in the market? I did not. I wish I could have said that <laughs> I, I figured it out. Uh, yeah. If only I could have been so smart, you know? So what happened was that I am extremely good at finding what I would call the productive frontier of research. So what I was really excellent at was understanding, okay, across all of the research that exists in AI, where is there really productive work to be done? Where should we focus? And I would say we did that uh, extraordinarily well. We built this amazing kind of competitive moat uh, really on, on a shoestring in hindsight, right? You know, kind of going up against heavyweights with billions in funding with, you know, like a, a dozen folks in hammocks. So that, that we did really well. The business side, I was not very good at figuring out, right? You know, developers really, really loved our product. We didn't really understand why that wasn't converting to sales. But what happened was actually they showed up at our doorstep. So I'll never forget, you know, we got this call. And I, I think really the, the moral for me is just, especially in the early days, even inbounds that you think are wacky, just, just take them because you never know what's gonna happen. It was this company, it was John Hancock Manulife. Uh, there's a you know press release out about this, so this is you know uh, all public stuff. And they were absolutely desperate for a solution like ours. They were very early to the game. Um, they were almost you know victims of their own success. You know, it was so successful internally that it became kind of highly politicized, and uh, the group technically doesn't exist anymore. But they were they were really desperate for technology like this. They saw the potential, and they, in a lot of ways, showed us what the potential was. And we actually, at the time, because we had built something that we knew from a technology perspective was really amazing, but we hadn't figured out how to get the business side working, uh, we're considering selling the company. And I, I forget, in the first conversation, I told them our traditional pricing, which was something like $1,600 a month for what they were asking for. And the next conversation that was a week later, I'm like, eh, you know, we're, we might sell the company anyway. So I just tossed out a number that was 10 times as high. So I said, no, actually, I, I meant $16,000 a month. They're like, okay. And I'm like, oh, I see. Maybe there's something here, right? 
Uh, and, and that was really the genesis for this shift over into Indico V2, because I was actually the CEO up until that point, and I realized that while I was a you know good enough CEO, if this developer strategy was going to work out, you know I didn't really have the expertise to go out and execute on an enterprise sales strategy. Right? Um, it's a very very specialized set of techniques. So we go out, found the CEO Tom Wild. You know I moved over to the CTO role, and the rest is history. Wow. Okay. So then did Tom take over most of the, the company's biz dev efforts from there, there on out? I, I wouldn't quite say that, you know, I, he and I co-sold, uh, you know, very, very heavily. I would say that for the whole, you know, first two years, you know, it was both of us in pretty much every, every sale. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So how did, so you were thinking about selling the company because it wasn't extremely profitable and then that happened. You know, that's kind of was the light bulb moment when you realized, okay, there's something here. And then, you know, what action steps were taken along that journey to success? You know, how did you engage with more prospects? Oh, so on, on the prospect side, that was a big, uh, you know, start with things that don't scale, right? This was me writing emails to anyone who would respond, right? You know, we're like, here is a list of, you know, 500 companies and we're just going to hammer them until someone talks to us. And honestly, that's one of the things that I think is really empowering about the B2B landscape and enterprise sales in the early days is it's not like a B2C company where you need to come up with this hyper viral, ultra repeatable model from day one. You absolutely don't have to do that. You just have to find a couple of people that are going to stick with you through the early days and really work with you to develop something great. Right. Right. Yeah. So, it, it you know, the first days, you know, it's literally just pound pavement, pound pavement, pound pound pavement, right? Find a couple of early adopters and then do whatever they tell you to do. Well, you know, not not actually, but but effectively, you know, you, you make them extremely happy. You stay as plugged into them as possible, right? You go down to them, you do workshops, right? Yeah. And, and that that's how we started, right? I would say that we also had an outbound effort that we used for a while, you know, more traditional outbound sales. We today have pivoted uh, totally to inbound and events and that that kind of stuff. It's great for us, you know, the quality of the folks coming in through the funnel is just uh, is night and day compared to what it was before, right? Um, but I think the thing that we didn't necessarily realize at the time, and I would also give as a really big piece of advice to folks is that Inbound takes a lot of time and you're going to have to invest a lot of time and energy into it consistently for a while before it really starts to show you the kind of benefits that um, that you hear about. Right, for sure. And I think probably one of the things, Slater, that helped you is, you know, and this this is something speaking to like the B2B sector generally, your solution spoke to a very specific problem. It was solving a problem for these you know, for these enterprises, you know, you are, again, automating, analyzing and applying unstructured data that was, you know, taking the work off of a lot of folks plates. You know, it's it's interesting, because I think now people very much get that, right. But four years ago, they did not, right. And and it, it is very interesting. Uh, I think it's a Jeff Bezos quote, that's, you know, like making a company is an exercise in, you know, it's like patience and being misunderstood. Because I think for the longest time, you know, people, because, you know, there have been uh, point solutions for single unstructured problems in the past. It's just that the way you used to do that is say, I want an invoice solution. It's like, okay, great. That's going to take 
two-person decades and $10 million, right? And it's going to be 60% accurate at the end of three years, right? Um, and then it'll be outdated a year after that, right? And so it really is just sort of a transformational way in approaching it. So one thing that we actually used to say to ourselves is that if they believe what we're pitching, then they don't understand what we're pitching. And, and, it, and it was a really kind of interesting and, and sort of difficult in the early days because, you know, the resistance that we got, it's actually funny, it wasn't from the subject matter experts because, you know, from their perspective, we were just making their jobs better, their lives easier. It was from often the data scientists. And again, this has gotten worlds better now than it was then. But because these techniques we were using, uh, you know, this is large scale language modeling and transfer learning uh, several years ago. Right? These are not techniques that they know. They're not things that they're familiar with. In a lot of cases, they would feel super pressured to have already come up with this or feel like they should be able to deliver this to production by themselves. And, and I don't know, maybe some executive thinks that they should be able to do that, but it's ridiculous, uh, frankly, to expect a data scientist to ship a deep learning model into production by themselves. It's just not doable. So it, it was very hard to kind of walk through that, you know, help them understand, hey, there is new technology. And in fact, it's pretty cool. And this is going to help you in a lot of ways. Whereas, again, for the for the non-technical folks, they saw it very simply. It's just like, I, I get that this is going to help. I see. I see. So those technical folks, though, like obviously your solution, obviously Indico would have helped them, too. But but they resisted it. Was that because of like internal pressure, like budgeting things or something like that? I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say budgeting, but I would say internal pressure. And, and I think that's the thing that we really sort of have to recognize and respect. And, you know, I, I think this is another good generic B2B lesson, right, is that the web of stakeholders is weird and complicated. One of the things that we, for instance, realized is that when I met with the data scientists one on one and it wasn't me and the data scientists and our CEO, Tom, and their boss, the exec in the room, conversation starts to go very differently, right? Oh, yes. Right. And, and so, you know, it's all these subtle things that, again, you're not even going to think about, you know, you might not even realize at the time, but something I, I have learned to pay really, really close attention to, map out the stakeholder web, right? Who is in the room? Who is not in the room? Who should be in the room and who should not be? One huge thing that we've realized, and, and I think this is common with um, more complex technical products, is they can invite too many stakeholders to the room. So sometimes we'll show up and there's 30 different people and there's data scientists and there's executives and there's subject matter experts and they just all care about extremely different things. It's not productive to have a meeting like that. So you really need to understand who the personalities are and how to kind of tease them apart and talk to each of them in a really specific way. You know, and that's a great lesson for our, our B2B leaders tuning in. You know, trial by committee is such a dangerous game to play. And I think we've all been on those, you know, those business development or sales calls where you're expecting a meeting with one or two key players and they bring the cavalry. And there's 13 people on the meeting, you know. Totally. And, and you know, and it's extremely difficult to make those meetings productive. Right. Um, it, it's not to say it can't be done. Right. But, you know, especially when they're sort of, you know, inviting everyone they can think of. Right. It tends to add a, a very large basic level of noise to the conversation. It's a lot harder to target your messaging in a situation like that. So I'm so this is great. This is great. Slater, how have you like in and I'm sure you guys, you know, when you have these sales calls, you would notice common themes and you'd adjust your processes. But, you know, how do you avoid those types of committee centric meetings? It's, it's very, it, it's tough, right? I think that 
We have gotten to the point where we have to be borderline belligerent about it, I will say, where, you know, we got better over time at just saying, hey, this is not the way to do it. You know, don't invite a data scientist to this meeting. Don't invite a process owner to this meeting. Don't invite a subject matter expert to this meeting, right? This is not who these are for. But, uh, you know, they don't, they don't really know, you know, they don't think too much about it. All stakeholders want to be involved. It's very hard for them to parse through it. So that didn't work particularly well. What we do now is we just police the invite list. And if we see that they are, you know, inviting too many people and drifting, we're just like, nope, we will not show up to this meeting unless you get your ducks in a row. Right, right. Um, wow. I think that's one of the hardest things in B2B sales and also one of the most important things. And, and, and that's, that's true whether this is setting the right meeting and setting the right tone or doing the right demo or constructing the right POC is that, you know, big businesses and big enterprises, they do like to throw their weight around, but it's your responsibility as a vendor not to let them shoot themselves in the foot. Right. Because it doesn't matter how they got there. Right. Even if you told them it was a stupid thing, if you do what they tell you to do and then it fails, like you're still on the hook. Right. Like, yeah, uh, for, for, you know, all of the desire to improve the enterprise, no one is going to care if they don't make a decision. They can just opt to not do anything and they're going to be just fine. You won't be. Right. Like you actually have a vested interest in helping them succeed in choosing a vendor. And, and that's very hard for some people. Right. And, you know, you recognize that your product is going to help this company. Like, you know, regardless of if we make money from this conversation, our product is literally going to help you. And I'm not going to let you self-sabotage by getting too many cooks in the kitchen. You know, know, there was a really good book called The Challenger Sale, and they have a, a particular motto there that is just like my creed for sales calls have conversations so valuable that the customer would pay for the conversation alone, right? So every conversation we have, my philosophy is very much that I know we have the best product out there, right? I've worked, our our product has tons of problems, don't get me wrong, right? It could be so much better than it is, and, and it will be, but it also happens to be the best that exists today, right, amongst our competitors. Uh, and so I know that the better I educate our customers, Right. In just a completely, you know, like objective, non-biased way, the better they understand the space, the more they will be able to see that for themselves. Right. And so that's why people even joke, you know, they call me Professor Slater. You know, I I infamously, (laughs) you know, at a at a lunch with an investor, uh, whipped out a bunch of sugar packets and started explaining convolutional neural nets. Oh, Um, yes. That's yeah, wonderful. but, but I, I actually think it's really important to do that. I think that, you know, even extremely challenging technical concepts can be understood at a, at a macro level uh, with effective analogies, I think. And you're really good at that. That's something I've experienced in our conversation today, Slater. But is that, and maybe it still is, has that been a challenge for you guys and your sales calls is educating people and helping them to understand the product? The, the number the number one challenge, right? And not even, I mean, yeah, getting them to understand our product is actually probably the easiest part. Getting them to understand the space is much harder, right? Getting them to understand, you know, in all the press they see about AI, you know, what's real or what's not, right? Or, you know, what they heard from their, you know, buddy out drinking last Tuesday, you know, what actually happened when they went out into production, right? And, and it is very, very difficult because people are very resistant to education. What we find is that 
there's two types of folks that are going to be really successful and one that is generally not going to be. The folks that are really successful are the ones that either have educated themselves to an extreme level. What we always say is like the, the more educated customer is, you know, the more competitors they've vetted, the more likely they are to go with us in the end, um, which, you know, is a good situation to be in. But but I think the, the other thing to kind of recognize, it's also people that are really willing to learn, will go out, really educate themselves on, on the state of the art. Uh, the people that are really bad fit for us, and, and unfortunately, you know, there's, there's a lot of these people, um, are ones with very specific, very incorrect notions about what AI is. And yeah, it's, it's, it's common because there's a lot of media out there and there's a lot of press out there and a lot of people, frankly, with pretty vested interests in conveying, you know, incorrect notions of AI. You know, there's a lot of a lot of snake oil out there, I think, especially because it's a very new sort of market. Well, it's new. People don't understand it, you know, and and I think it's in a way a politicized term to an extent, you know. I, I'm, there's, you know, there's always holy wars in any academic field. It's something to understand is like, you know, deep learning has its own, you know, political battles fought over it, right? Explainable AI, you know, the, the same way that saying otherwise innocuous terms in like a political context, it's absolutely the case where there's these camps and these holy wars and different AI camps and, and you know, people kind of, you know, get on their haunches and, and you know, defend it. And, and it's very tough also because, you um, the U.S. is actually pretty bad at AI overall, and this is a slightly controversial hot take, but um, when you compare us to, you know, Canada and Europe, a lot of our major universities were a lot slower on the draw, specifically on deep learning, you know, very, very slow to invest. And yeah, I, I would say that, you know, we, we have brought in, you know, a lot more talent overseas. You know, we do have a few kind of very compelling groups, but there's a reason that, you know, some of the most important labs here were made in Canada and London and not the U.S. Mm. Mm. No, that's really insightful. That's really insightful. Well, Slater, tell us about what's next. You know, what lies on the horizon for Indico? You know, it's it's Q1 of 2022. There's a lot going on in the world. We came out of an interesting time that I unfortunately think we're still in to an extent. But what are some of the things that uh, folks can look forward to seeing? Yeah. So this is, yeah. So Indica's are in, thankfully, a very good spot, you know, all things considered. Uh, certainly the pandemic's been tough. Uh, Massachusetts is, is rough now. You know, we, uh, we flattened the curve, but in the wrong direction over the past couple of weeks. It's going straight up. But, uh, you know, I would say all that said, people are really starting to understand that this new way of working is here to stay. Whether it's because of COVID or not, I think many people have really realized that there are pretty tremendous benefits to having the flexibility to come into an office or not, you know, be able to work remote, even be able to live in a different city if they want to. And I think that that cat is sort of out of the bag is even if we, you know, kind of, I don't know, so, something gets, you know, dramatically better in, in sort of the years to come. I think that is, is here to stay. It's very, very hard, I think, to go back from that. Now for Indico in particular, People are also starting to realize that for all of the progress that has been made in these automation initiatives and these AI initiatives, it really has been you know 99.9% focused on structured data. Uh, and you know, organizations have uh, benefited tremendously from that, right? You know, I don't I don't think people are having any shortage of money they're making from their existing AI initiatives. But the vast majority of data that they've got is actually unstructured. You know, I think the, the traditional estimates are somewhere between 85 and 90% of all the data they're actually working with is unstructured. And 
People are just now getting to the point where they're able to productively use that data in the way they were able to use structured data before. So the really big things for us when we look forward are these deep technical integrations into a lot of these platforms that have already become so common, right? You know, I mentioned Salesforce, I mentioned Power Automate. You know, we already have partnerships with all of the RPA vendors, but uh, you know, you think things like like MuleSoft, right? And these infrastructure layers that have become uh, an indispensable part of the modern enterprise. You know, we, we think that the same way that you go out and shop for a database or shop for an auto ML solution, you know, people are going to be shopping for unstructured solutions. Uh, and that's started to happen, right? It's not, not universal yet. You know, I still think that we've got the chasm to cross in, in front of us, right? But we have a lot of very, very happy customers with very big names that we're hoping will really help to propel this. Um, and, you know, we'll see, but, uh, you know, hopefully into the first Gartner Magic Quadrant. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, one of the things I love about your your website, indicodata.ai, is the, you know, knowledge base under your resources tab. I mean, that 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 helped me uh, certainly prepare for this conversation and educate myself. But, you know, I think it's really cool how AI, again, it's a new term. A lot of things are going on, but you really help to educate the consumer. Um, so I, I implore listeners to check it out. Yeah, I think, you know, the AI is here to stay. It is proliferating at a ridiculous rate. And I really do believe it's the fourth industrial revolution. I think that sitting on the other side of it, I can tell you, even though it feels like it's everywhere now, right? It's in your phone and it's in Google and it's everything. It's still, you know, we're still in the tip of the iceberg, right? We're still very much ramping. Definitely. Definitely. So does that make, and I'm, I'm sure that makes you hopeful for the future, you know, because some people yes, fear yeah. AI. <laughs> no, and, and, I mean, that, that is fair. And I, I don't want to make the, I don't want to make the claim that there's no risks with AI. You know, I think that there, there's quite a few really serious risks. And I think that it's important that we adopt it responsibly. You know, what 100%. I think that, you know, I said people are selling snake oil. They absolutely are. I think people, especially in positions like ours, where we're dealing with loan applications and we're dealing with these highly highly sensitive data elements that really do impact people's lives. I think that, I hope that in the years to come, we see a greater respect for the power that these models have, because I think that people can maybe be a little bit flippant about it right now. And, and people make, and you know, there, there's been some really embarrassing mistakes, like really embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Well, Slater, I've so enjoyed our conversation today. You know, I, I loved learning about your journey and Indico data. Where can listeners, you know, get plugged into your community, follow your work, learn more about what you're up to? Yeah, totally. You know, so you can feel free to follow me at Twitter, SL8RV. Check out my work at Slater.website. Uh, ask me a question on Quora or, you know, check out Indico at IndicoData.ai, like you said. Oh, that's perfect. Well, Slater, Victor, thank you so much for coming on Leaders of B2B. I've so enjoyed our conversation. Total pleasure. Thanks for having me, Noah. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. Mm-hmm.